0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes two seventeen through twenty six. If you can, won't you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun." This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving, with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless." A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Hey, good morning. You know, every year in Amish communities across America, there's a rite of passage that Amish adolescents go through. It's called the Rumspringa, which is the Pennsylvania Dutch pronunciation of a German word that just means to hop around. Now, as you may know, the Amish, who are a subset of the Anabaptist tradition, they live very simple organized communal lives with an emphasis on hard work and humility and no electronics and no motors or motorized vehicles, simple clothing and particular hairstyles, dedicated religious practices, and a strong sense of, of communal and personal responsibility. And when an Amish boy or girl turns 16, they enter their springer, and this is the opportunity for them to hop around and try different ways of living without being punished or shunned for it. And this Rumspringa may last a few months, it may last a few years, even until they decide what they want to do with their lives. And adolescents in their roomspringer are free to try on practices of the world around them. So jeans and t-shirts instead of simple smocks, they drive vehicles, they drink and other recreational drugs. They don't go to prayer meetings often. There's heavy partying, playing video games, lots of smoking. And why do the Amish allow this roomspringer? It's because the Amish people believe that entering the church and becoming a follower of Jesus is a lifelong commitment that needs to be taken very seriously. And so before age 16, they are considered children, but after 16, they're considered adults. And so they need to make their own choice. Will they be baptized? Will they enter the church? Will they enter the community? If so, if they choose to enter the community, they need to settle down, get married, work hard, and live according to the community's rules, be Amish. If they don't, if they choose not to, they are free to go and live their lives however they want. And the idea under the Rumspringa is that once a young person experiences the worldly pleasures for themselves, then they'll be able to really compare the pleasures that they could experience within the Amish community, pleasures of a committed marriage and hard work and a simple life. Now what's really remarkable about this is that about 90 to 95% of adolescents who go through the roomspringer room return to the Amish life, return to that, despite no matter what they've done, they often live very crazy party lives. They know that they are always welcome to come back and about 90 or 95% of them do. Now, while I have some reservations about this practice because I do think the, the habits that can be formed during that time can be very you know, lifelong damaging, one thing about the room springer that is good, I think, is that it forces you and me and forces them to ask this question. If you could do whatever you wanted, would you be satisfied? If you could do whatever you wanted, Would that really satisfy you? If you had unlimited money, unlimited power, opportunity, strength, whatever you wanted, what would the result be? Would the result be happiness or flourishing? Well, this is exactly what our biblical text for today is seeking to answer. And last week, we began a, a 12-week series in the Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Kevin's amazing sermon, please go back and do so. He did a great job of laying out kind of an orientation to this often confusing book. I mean, even if you just heard those verses, they sound very confusing and sound very non-biblical. What's going on in Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. Well, Ecclesiastes is an invitation for you and me to learn the wisdom of how to live life well in God's creation. And, and the teacher of Ecclesiastes calls this life under the sun, which basically just means the span of our earthly lives. And the constant refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is, is that life under the sun is the Hebrew word hebel. In our translations, your translation, if you have a Bible, it probably says something like meaningless or vanity. But as Kevin pointed out last week, that really misses the point. By calling our lives Hebel, it's not, that, it's not saying that the, the life is meaningless. It's saying that it's elusive and it's unpredictable and it's, it's fleeting. Our lives are like wind or breath. They are fleeting and unpredictable and elusive. And so we're going to see throughout this book of Ecclesiastes that the teacher is inviting you and me to actually be honest about our lives, how fleeting they are, how elusive they are, how unpredictable they are, and yet to learn wisdom about how to live in light of that. And today we're going to focus on chapter two. I just had us read the last part of chapter two, but we're going to look at all of chapter two and it's really set up for us. Right at the end of chapter one, let me read for you. Let me put before you Ecclesiastes 1.17. The teacher says, So I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. And what we're going to see now is that in chapter two, from verses one to 17, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is seeking understanding. And so he engages in a life experiment. He really engages in his own rumspringa. And he's asking the question, is there anything under the sun that will really satisfy me? Is there anything I can do or think or be or try that will make life feel like it's more than just a vapor? To make life feel like it's more than just fleeting and elusive and unpredictable. What's amazing about what happens in chapter two is that this guy can actually do it. He is an ancient king. And so he possesses all the power, all the authority, all the money he would want. Unlike us, most of us here have limits on our power and our money and our time, but this guy does not. And so there's a sense in which we get to, in chapter two, like live vicariously through his roomspringa and see what happens when this guy tries to do everything he can and conduct this great experiment to find life. Now, when I was growing up, my, uh, I spent a lot of time at like a second home for me. It was Aunt Margaret and Uncle Gene's house in, in central Illinois. And one of the things I loved about going to Aunt Margaret and Uncle Gene's house is they had a ton of games. In like fact, they had that, that hockey slot table thing. Man, I love that thing. Anybody else play those? Those are so good, right? But they had this whole closet full of games. And I loved to go there and play the different games they had. And really in chapter two, the teacher goes to the world's game closet and he opens it up and he says this, look at chapter two, verse one. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. There's basically eight amusements that he tries out. He tries out these eight different world games to see if he will find satisfaction. And If you have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you or just type into your phone and Google Ecclesiastes 2 because it'd be great if you're looking along with me here because I'm not going to put all these verses up here. So follow along with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we'll see what we can call the great experiment tried. I'm just going to go through these quickly. In verse two, Ecclesiastes two, verse two. First, he tries out humor, laughter, jokes, puns, comedies. He says, is this going to satisfy? Somebody recently asked me, like, what's one of the most life-giving things? Or what is the most life-giving thing for you? And the first thing that came to mind is just some friends I have, a number of friends I have that just really make me laugh. I mean, there's, there's few things I enjoy more than just being with clever people and just enjoying laughing with them. And the teacher tries this out to say, is that gonna satisfy? Verse three, if you're following along there, the teacher tells us that he thoughtfully and carefully used wine as an experiment to find out if life could be found there. He, he tries out what Psalm 104 tells us. He says, to, the psalmist says to God, you caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try drinking wine and see if that will give me the pleasure that I want. Verses four to seven. We see that the teacher tries out crafting and building. He, he builds beautiful things, houses and vineyards and gardens and parks, artistic creations. He brings order out of chaos. He adds beauty to the world. Is that gonna satisfy? Verses seven and eight, money and possessions. In the, in the latter part of verse seven, and the beginning of verse eight, the teacher explores the power of money. We often joke in our household, Money can't buy happiness, but I'm willing to give it a try, right? And this is what he does. Verse 8, he tries music. And truly one of the greatest and most sublime creations of God, this mysterious, powerful, transforming gift of music. And And I love music of all sorts right? From Mendelssohn to Taylor Swift to Dave Brubeck to Pink Floyd. That's what I write my sermons to is Pink Floyd usually. And and music is amazing. It enables us to experience the whole range of emotions. It helps us articulate and energize and understand the complex reality of being human. And so the teacher had the best musicians and singers available. And he says, is this going to give me the pleasure I long for? Verse eight, sex. It's not a profound statement to observe that, or a unique one to observe that the most, one of the most powerful human experiences is our God-created sexuality. It drives men and women to do good things, like getting married and caring for other people and being committed. And it also causes men and women to do really stupid things, like committing adultery and hurting others and making a wreck of our lives. And the teacher has all the money he wants. He has all the immunity he wants. So he tries out, is this going to satisfy me to live a life of lots of sex? Verse nine, affirmation and honor. The teacher tells us that he experienced great affirmation and honor, and he checks whether this is going to satisfy him. And then in verse 10, work. He tells us about the satisfaction that comes from hard work. And I can relate to this. I'm a, this guy is, I think what I like to think of myself as as well, a GSD, a get stuff done guy, right? In fact, I love to-do lists and I love to get stuff done. And I bet some of you experience this as well. If I do something that's not on my to-do list, I write it on the to-do list just so I can check it off afterwards. It's great to get stuff done. And, and he experiences that and says, is this going to satisfy as well? And I love how Eugene Peterson translates these last couple of verses. He says, <clears throat> speaking, the teacher saying this, oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind, left behind in the dust. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave into every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the morrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. And for all this great experiment, this ancient Jewish rumspringa, what does our pleasure-seeking teacher find? He finds that all of these shining pleasures prove to be temporary, plastic, and cheap, no matter how good they looked initially. And all these bodily pleasures sooner or later show their true colors. They're really just more chasing after the wind. They are fleeting and elusive and out of control. Look at verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Or again, let me read for you how Eugene Peterson translate this. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done. I looked at all the sweat and hard work, but when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it, nothing. And notice, this isn't, he's not just talking about immoral and bad things, He's saying this is even true of the good things like laughter and, and sex and hard work and music. In everything under the sun, our human experience, he says, can be summed up with what we can call the law of diminishing returns. No matter how much pleasure something gives you, the more you're engaged in it, it pays back less and less and less on a downward curve. Sooner or later, we all face what we describe in our household and I've mentioned from the pulpit here before the December 26th experience. No matter how much excitement and expectation and we'll extend out the Advent season for weeks and weeks and the excitement of the the possible snow and the gifts and the family and the food and the fellowship and the fun, no matter what happens, December 26th comes and the long winter sets in afterwards. The preacher, set out on a quest for happiness by giving himself to everything he could find and and he held happiness in his hands for a moment and then he watched it slip through his fingers. It's like Indiana Jones when he puts his hands on the golden Chachapoan fertility idol and he thinks that when he replaces it with the bag of sand, it's gonna be fine and then it starts to sink in and then darts start firing at him and a big boulder comes down to crush him. That's our experience of these pleasures. The pleasure of humor is fleeting. It doesn't last. Sadness and boredom come. In fact, many people take on this false self of what we might call a jokester that everything's always got to be funny and everything's always a joke, which is almost always, if not always, a way of hiding deep pain and wounds. Alcohol, a good gift from God, but the Bible is very clear. Great foolishness and harm can come from becoming from using alcohol in a way that has, is very destructive. Crafting and building, I love building beautiful things, and, there, and and beautiful things are good and can last a while. But everything eventually crumbles, gets cracks, get, gets robbed and vandalized, loses its luster. Money and possessions—it's no coincidence that some of the unhappiest ungenerous and unsatisfied and unsatisfiable people are the wealthiest people. Do you know that? Music, every song gets old eventually. And music is a powerful gift that does give great pleasure, but it's not sufficient for all the pain and disappointment and suffering you experience. Sex, the law of diminishing returns often results in perversions. And contrary to what our flesh says, the more promiscuous one is, the less satisfied they are with sex. Affirmation and honor. Fame and honor and affirmation feel so good for a while, but it's never enough. I remember as a young student, the first time I saw my name in print in a, in a journal and how exciting that was. And the first time I saw my, something I'd written in a, in a publisher's catalog, now, after having a PhD and you know, countless things I've published, it often just feels empty. And one bad book review or one disappointing sales result can send me into deep despair and self-doubt. No matter how much I've accomplished, it's never enough. And work Like affirmation and crafting, work can feel great, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. Things break and break down. Work never ends. There's always somebody going to be more successful and better than you. And eventually your body and your mind will wear out and get crunchy and slow and dried up. It's all smoke. It's chasing after the wind. So the teacher then tries a different tactic. He says, okay, I tried pleasures. Now let me try wisdom. Look at verses 12 to 16. Let me just read for you. <clears throat> he says, then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What, what more can the king's successors do than what he's already been done? I, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And I said to myself, this too is, is vapor or smoke, meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. <laughs> Ouch. The teacher tries out the life of Wisdom. He says, okay, I tried pleasure, let me try wisdom. And there are tons of gurus out there to help you. Just go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble or Amazon and you will find all kinds of wisdom on offer. And a lot of it's very good. But what the teacher says here is ultimately at the end of the day, you can live wisely, but you're still going to die. And no matter what you've done, although living wisely is better than living foolishly because the pain is less now, at the end of the day, you're going to die. And what does it mean? So he tries foolish, he tries pleasure, he tries wisdom. How is he going to respond now? How do we respond? Well, the result of all this great experiment is actually despair. The result of this great groom spring up for him is despair. Look at verses 17 and following. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is vapor, or fleeting, or meaninglessness. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person must labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaninglessness and great misfortune. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. What happens when you get for what you've worked for? Rarely does it ever really satisfy. And again, nothing lasts. Beauty fades, weeds grow, cars get scratches, dents and rust, walls settle and crack, and then you die. And all that you've created, built, worked for goes to somebody who may appreciate it or may sell your lifelong collection of vintage baseball cards or silver coins for 75 cents at a garage sale, (laughs) as Kevin reminded us last week as well. And so lament is wise, and lament is appropriate at certain times and places, and this is one big place when we honestly look at our lives and all of our striving. So we have the great experiment he tries, and then the sense that he has is despair. What do we do? What do you do? in those vulnerable moments when you're honest, when you just stop striving for a minute and you're honest about your life, how do you handle that despair that comes in that moment? Well, different humans try different things. People, some people can be described, what we describe as hedonism. You just double down in seeking more pleasure. And ultimately though, That just results in more despair and more self-destruction. Pleasures become addictions and addictions become destroyers. Some people just become cynics. You just accept the meaningless of life. So you just say, stop fretting and lie on a park bench and watch the sunset and snicker at all the fools who think life really matters. Some people, some of you this morning, have learned to just show up as a cynic. Some people are nihilists. They become purveyors of despair. And you just give yourself over to the pain and the ashes and the meaninglessness of everything. Some of you might feel that this morning. But I think closest to the bone is what a lot of Christians do. And we can call this a Christianized escapism. A Christianized escapism where this, this can look like a couple of different things. Because we know God is good and we're supposed to believe that, it's hard for us to handle that sense of despair. It's hard for us to really Listen to what Ecclesiastes 2 says. And so some of us just put on a happy face. Everything's great. God is good. Romans 28, 828, baby, it's all going to be fine. Or other of us turn against the pleasures of the world. This world and all its pleasures are bad. Run away. It's going to burn. Just look to God and white knuckle it until we get the heck out of this horrible place. Both versions of a Christianized escapism. That's not what the, where the teacher ends up. That's not what the teacher's saying. None of this is what God's wisdom ultimately tells us. And here we finally come to the point and the solution and it's in verses 24 and following. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see is from the hand of God for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. Now, at first, this may sound like hedonism. It may just sound like "e drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die, but that's not what the teacher is saying. There is something far more profound and God-centered and satisfying and wise than that, and here is it. The solution to all this sense of fleetingness is a God-centered contentment. A God-centered contentment. As one commentator on these verses notes, in Ecclesiastes one fourteen through two twenty three, God is completely absent, and now at the end of chapter two, in, in chapter two verses twenty four to twenty six, God is mentioned three times in quick succession, and the emphasis is on what God gives. God gives us enjoyment in His gifts by giving us perspective on ourselves and what he has given. Let me say that again. God gives us enjoyment in his gifts by giving us perspective on what he has given us. We are not meant to rule the world. We are not meant to master our destiny. We are not meant to achieve ultimate gain in this life or satisfaction through anything we might do in the great experiment. The solution instead is to rediscover and remember God in heaven while we live our lives on earth under the sun. Instead, you see, of trying to use all the good pleasures and gifts that God has given us to humanity, instead of using them to find meaning, instead of using wisdom or pleasure to find gain, to find satisfaction in and of themselves, instead, a meaningful, contented life can be found when we learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given as from his hand. I love how Pastor Zach Eswine describes it. He says, the preacher maintains that God exists and is knowable, therefore, purpose can be recovered, not beneath the sun, but in the one who created the sun. And Eswine goes on brilliantly to describe that when we look for satisfaction in the world apart from God, it's like, it's like looking for medicine at a shoe store or like playing soccer with a watermelon. Shoe stores are great and playing soccer is awesome. Not last night, if you went to the Blue City game, it was horrible, but so too, The things God has made and given to us under the sun are good, but when we use them in the wrong way, as if they are going to actually give us life, then they are unsatisfying and they make a mess, like a watermelon in soccer. Now, that is an insight that goes all the way back to the great teacher, St. Augustine. Augustine repeatedly emphasized that the root of so much of our sin and struggle as humans is that we use what we're supposed to love and we love what we're supposed to use. Let that sink in. A big part of our human problem is that we use what we're supposed to love and we love what we're supposed to use. All the things that God has given us for our good are good. And these though are to be used, not loved. Pleasures, work, beautiful things, humor, sex, money, when we love these things rather than use them as gifts, then we mess up our lives and the lives of others. But, when we, but we will find life when we love, not use the things we're supposed to love. God and other people not using these things to get pleasure, but actually loving them. You see, true contentment under the sun in the midst of this fleetingness of life is found when we accept our reality and find God in each moment. We are dependent creatures on our relationship with God. Our bodies, our work, our pleasures are not to be ignored or denied. We don't escape these things, but they are to be lived in a proper relationship as gifts from God. What about you today? Do you struggle to be content? I do. Do you feel the elusiveness of life? To whatever degree that's true of us, it's a function of that we're looking for love in all the wrong places. This is because you were made for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. This doesn't mean that once you become a Christian, that life immediately becomes all clear and easy. Learning God-centered contentment is just that. It is a learning process. Like driving a car or playing golf, you can read about it, you can think about it, but the only way to grow is to actually try it, to make mistakes, to stumble, and to sometimes get it right. And the practice of learning God-centered contentment is actually learning to pay attention to your pleasures and pains. Learning to pay attention to the outcome when you try to love these pleasures rather than use them, when we try to grasp the things under the sun as if they will actually give us life, rather than seeing them as a gift from God and recognizing that their pleasure is a gift that I can only find ultimately in God. You and I can actually learn to be more content by paying attention to how we handle the good things in our lives. Now, Back in 2002, there was a, documentary called The Devil's Playground made about this practice of the Rumspringa. And it featured a young man named Farron Yoder. He was a young Amish man who was a couple years into his Rumspringa. And later on, Ira Glass interviewed him for an episode many years ago of This American Life. And it is a fascinating and heartbreaking to listen to that interview. Farron lived a life of sex and drugs and electricity and cars and resulted in a meth addiction and drug dealing and jail time. And on the interview, you you can hear the sadness, the confusion, the unsettledness in his voice. He's really a soul adrift. And he talks about how before he was 16, he would see everyone in the world outside of his Amish community and think, man, those people are so lucky. They have all these pleasures and freedoms. And so once he turned 16, he went for it with disastrous results. And he recognized that the point of the of the springer was to help young Amish men and women get into the world and actually see how much unhappiness there is in the world. Farron acknowledges that being Amish won't guarantee that you'll be happy. But it's interesting, he observes that when he looks back on his Amish community that he had left, that he says the vast, vast majority of the people were actually really content and happy even though they didn't have much. And looking back, he can see that the reason why almost all of his friends returned to the Amish community is because it was really attractive. Here's what he said, this is a quote. He says, you don't have all the modern things or whatever, But as far as peace, tranquility, and a calm life, it's really beautiful, he says, looking back. And then Ira Glass asked Farron this penetrating question. He asked him, are you happy? And this formerly Amish man is very vulnerable, and he says with a cracking voice, I I think so. I'm, I don't know. I always have a, I don't know about happy. I'm just a little bit more relaxed now. What a revealing and sobering and instructive response. All he can say is that he feels a little bit more relaxed, but this is not enough, friends. This is not enough to sustain a life. And God is saying to you and me this morning through Ecclesiastes 2, that there is more to this life than just the great experiment of seeking pleasure. Life under the sun has been subjected to futility, as Romans 8 tells us, so that you and I can learn the hard-wrought life of wisdom. That true life is only found in embracing life that God has given us as a gift from him, learning the practice of contentment. There is a contentment to be found, but it's not gonna be found by trying to escape the reality or deny the reality of the vaporness of life. The, The wisdom That will give us life is to learn to receive all that God has given us as a gift and to direct our hearts toward him. What about you? Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.